Hey, y'all. Welcome back to Shades of Brilliance. I'm your host, Sierra Venable, and I am so busy, y'all. Let me just give you a little update. I moved to London. God, how many months ago now? I was in September. So almost, yeah, like approaching on two months ago. I'll be here, as far as I know, for like about a year, a little over a year. I'm in my master's program here. I'm in art direction at the University of the Arts London. I keep saying the University of the Arts London. I think it's just University of the Arts London. You get the gist. I'm in an arts program. Um, I've had some questions on what art direction even is. And honestly, I am defining that through my program. Basically, if you know anything about communications or art, um, branding, these kind of um I like to say that art direction is kind of at the base of the industry. So while you see like on the surface an advertisement or a fashion show or these kind of final ideations of work, what you don't see is the people that study and do all of the critical analysis that builds to these huge campaigns and these huge bodies of work. Um, That's what I'm doing. I am doing a lot of reading, a lot of writing. Um, Right now, I think we get into more ideation and more visual narratives later throughout the program. Right now, I'm just in my bookworm era. I literally have like five books checked out right now because I am building and writing a magazine. Um, It's a 3,000 word literature review that I basically have to take a topic and just go down rabbit holes, connect all of the ideas together in a concise 3,000 words. And like, build visuals around it. And I literally have three weeks to do it. So I, um, I am busy. Okay. Um, like really busy. London is so fun though. I feel like my life did a, another 180 where I went from like working, going home, sleeping, eating, repeat to my life just feels so full right now. It's really exciting. I'm really happy. And London is great. Um, I did want to get into today some American dream stuff because as we know it, the world is changing. And I hate to say that because it's such a yay, everything, find the positive. <laughs> like, you know that like toxic positivity? That's how that statement feels to me. The world is changing. Like, no crap. I feel like I everyone is trying to process in real time not only history. But reality at the same time, particularly Gen Z, because when I talk to my mom or older generations, there's this like sentiment of like, I can't believe this is happening. And Gen Z is kind of like, what do you mean you can't believe this is happening? Like we grew up with a general sense that the systems that we were supposed to believe in were going to fail us. There's always been this kind of cynical outlook on those things. And now it's like, it's almost validating us. I feel like as a Gen Z, which I guess I'm kind of a, what is it called? A Gisennial or something where I'm kind of a millennial, kind of a Gen Z. But I I say Gen Z because I was born after 9-11. I don't have a conscious remembering of where I was on 9-11. And in America, that is the dividing line for Gen Z. You know, that was the last or the, you know, huge historical event that separated, you know, millennials from true Gen Zs um, because I wasn't conscious for that event. I mean, I was not even alive, actually. Um, So anyways, I feel like I keep having these generational conversations where, you know, we're talking about, wow, things are changing. 
the world is changing, but it's almost validating as a Gen Z that everything is falling apart because it's like there was no way this was going to work to begin with. Like this was not sustainable. And when I say this as an American, I'm referring to the American dream. I'm referring to the imperialist country that is the United States. You know, this never ending progress, this never ending machine that is supposed to somehow keep going at all costs. And what we are waking up to as Americans is that there is a cost. There is something on the other side of that, right? And we have been blinded to that because we, we're lulled to sleep with all of the things we could want, with all the things we could need. And it's, it's just fascinating. You know, my friends here, and I wanted to mention this before I really get into American Dream. My friends here are from all over the world. I literally have friends from all over the world. I have friends that are from France. I have friends that are from um, India. I have friends that are from Spain. I have friends that are from Italy. I have, I mean, like literally all over the world. Friends that are from the Middle East. Friends that, I mean, like in all different cultures too. Like they may be from a certain country, but their culture is completely different. So I'm learning a lot right now. Like my brain is like absorbing so many things. And one of the things I realized is all of these people that I know, know so much about American culture. And I'm not talking like, oh yeah, don't you guys have a bald eagle as a mascot? I'm talking like they know the deep intricacies of American culture. And it's the weirdest like currency exchange because first of all, I speak English. That's my native tongue. I know no other language. I mean, I did four years of French in high school, but I, I, I don't, I can't speak it. I can't like, you know, like, I, you know what I'm saying? Like, I feel so on the outskirts of reality as an American. And in America, I feel like I'm very progressive. I'm very ahead of things. And here I don't. I feel like I don't know anything. Like, I'm, I feel like my brain is jogging trying to keep up. But at the same time, throughout the world, there is an American perspective. There's, a, there's a, literally an American lens. You know, when you talk about the gays, you know, the female gaze, the male gaze, this idea that we all have lenses that we wear as we walk through life. And institutionally, we are segregated based on those differences. For example, I'm a woman. So one of the lenses of my life is to see things as a woman, but also as a black woman. So I have two lenses. I have black, I have woman. I am cisgendered. I am heterosexual. So these are all lenses I see the world through. And it's so easy for somebody that's not black to say, um, oh, I know about black culture, but how do you? You don't have my lens, right? So each one of us has these lenses. America in itself is a lens because we have exported, no, exploited. We sell our culture abroad. And when I mean, when I say sell our culture, I mean, we implant it. And I don't know how the mechanisms of that work. I think it's just a very deeply ingrained public relations tactic where we have convinced the world that through media and through entertainment that we are living this dream. It's like, forget all of the world's problems. You know, look at America. We're happy. We have big houses. We have picket fences. We eat McDonald's and we're, you know, living the high life. And I think People can see that we're not living the high life. If anything, a lot of my friends are perplexed by American culture, but they're still interested. Like, for example, an, a regular American kid in the suburbs, 
I don't think they even want to know anything about French culture. Like, they might like to watch Emily in Paris, which is an American show, an American adaptation of French culture. But, like, there's no depth of, like, oh, my God, I want to go to France and I want to go to Normandy and I want to, you know what I'm saying? Like, and I think there's this general idea that Americans are stupid, that we're ignorant, we don't know anything about culture. And I would like to assert that we are literally coddled to sleep. Like if we, I think as our society falls apart and as many Americans right now wake are waking up from the American dream, we are also realizing that we, they kept us just busy enough to not really want to care about anything else. And you're talking, these are a people, I come from a people that are so warped by consumption. Meaning, if there are any trials and tribulations, let's go to Target. For those of you who don't know, Target is kind of like a grocery store, kind of like a, how do you describe Target to an audience that is not American? It's basically like any aesthetically pleasing non-essential item that you can think of is in this place and it's overpriced and you we know that it's overpriced but it's why we go because it's like you're you're almost trying to look for a deal amongst the junk of stuff that you do not need and this is american culture like a, a life of excess at whatever cost and so like we are such a we're, we're, we have such a weird lens and we have forced the rest of the world to see that lens as well, to see through that lens as well. So when I'm hanging out with my friends and we're, or we're at a party and one of my friends puts on like a deep niche American song, like I'll never forget it. My, one of my friends is from France and she puts on Love by Keisha Cole. And if you don't heard that song, it's like, love, never knew what I was missing, but I knew as we start kissing, I thought, okay, you get it? That song is so niche. Like, that song is what black moms listen to, cleaning, on Sundays. Like, when I'm explaining to you, they don't just know surface level, oh, yeah, don't you guys eat hamburgers? Like, I, it's like, it actually makes me sick to my stomach when I realize just how ingrained our culture is. And as an American, I realize that this is so insensitive and stupid to be talking about because it's like, what it's really exposing is that I know nothing about different cultures. I mean, I thought I knew something. I don't know anything. I mean, the the depth that I thought I had is wrong, which is why I'm so grateful for these relationships. But at the same time, it's like, I'm almost perplexed. Like, you know this much about me? I'm not kidding. She requests this song at a party, my friend. She goes, oh, do you know this song? Do you know this song? I said, yeah, I'm black. Joking with her. And I think she, I threw, I, I think she was kind of like, what? But it's like, how do you know this? You know, I'm just like, what? Specifically black culture. I'm realizing that black culture is a huge export for the American capitalist regime. And do you know what I'm saying? Like, I hope I'm conveying this well. 
I think I'm forgetting how to articulate it because, you know, I'm coming so excited to learn about French culture, so excited to learn about anything else than what I know. And I'm almost like the spoke, I've become in some way the spokesperson for America. And, and nobody's doing this to me. I'm definitely doing this to myself. But it's like, there's such a mirage with the lens of America that when I'm interacting with people that are not American, there's they're still like, like they know our country is falling apart. They they have this different perspective of our of our country, and they know it has a lot of pitfalls and a lot of issues, but they almost are still like, but can I? see the wizard behind the screen like like there's still this like fantastical element to american culture and they know so much you guys i wish i could articulate the depth the depth i don't know any depth like they know about any other culture i mean i know italians like pasta i know you know like i i know these surface level things i don't I, I don't know the things that motivate people. For, I mean, like I said, they know. They know. And it's making me think about a lot of things. And if I could make this jump, we're going to make a jump here. So just follow along. It's reminding me of the American dream. Because even as as much as I thought I dismantled the American dream before moving abroad, I still am in love with it. I still am in love with Miss American Dream. Like, why do I still love America? Like, what is wrong with me? America's like the toxic boyfriend that won't leave anybody alone. He's cheated on everybody. He's abused everybody. Yet I still am like, I love him. Like, what is going on? Why am I still infatuated with somebody who doesn't even like me? And why do other people know that America is infatuated with black culture? You know, I I really think that in some of the people that I talk to, because they have this, like, for example, I have one of my Italian friends is talking about Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift. I'm like, why do you care? You have a depth of of beauty in your own culture. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, it almost doesn't make sense. It doesn't compute to me. As an American who doesn't want to care about Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift, I'm just like, what? And like, I said, it's like, in a way, everyone is still in love with this fantasy of America, including myself. And I thought I really dismantled a lot of my, you know, my patriotic values. Because as a Black American, I have not felt like the system of America was going to help me ever in life, ever. And so I, my relationship to America is an abusive one. But like I said, because people here are so infatuated with black culture through American culture, because America is exporting it, I'm almost like, oh, wait, like I'm starting to re-believe the fantasy. And it kind of, Here's where I wanted to take the jump. It's There's a big discourse right now on TikTok about Emma Chamberlain. 
I know this is a jump. This is a huge leap. But in talking about the American dream, I don't think it gets as easy to digest than to talk about a 16-year-old who drops out of high school, becomes an internet celebrity basically overnight, develops a genuine fan base, starts a brand, becomes a millionaire, is on oh my God, every big brand you can think of. She's at the fashion shows. She's on the billboards. I mean, she's deeply involved in culture, in in media. And this is like what Americans are supposed to believe. Now, we know that that's not real. As much as we want to might think, oh, maybe I could be one one day. Maybe I could be an influencer one day. We know that that's not real. So Emma Chamberlain is my age. She's probably, what, 22, 23? I would say 23. And she has achieved more than most adults have. She's reached multi-million dollars. She has a home. She has successful companies. And it's just kind of like what the American dream is supposed to be, at least in a modern context. We know what the old version of American dream is. You know, grow up get married, have babies, start a family, buy a home, tend to that home, love God and die a peaceful death, right? Like we, we know what that version is, right? Like that's a very boomer version of American dream. Golf course, you know, retirement. There is no modern adaptation of American dream besides influencing. Like for young people, we see that as like our only way out. Like, how can I exploit myself to get out of this? And the reality is you don't get out of it. And that's what people are realizing. I think Americans are waking up and realizing that because I've seen a lot of discourse on the internet about Emma Chamberlain lately. And people are talking about her podcast. She has a podcast. And they're like, all she does is complain. Like, it's not even thoughtful anymore. It's like, she needs to go to college. Like she has these deep philosophical questions that she needs to talk about in a college, like structured environment. And I thought that was such an interesting discourse because it wasn't tearing her down. I think people still respect her. It's not that she's been canceled or that she sucks. It's that like, is there value in the slow, laborious parts of life? I think Americans are starting to romanticize those things again. Because as I'm hearing these disc these opinions on college and on how why people think Emma Chamberlain should go to college, I'm thinking about, oh my God, everything comes back full circle. And I will say, I am in my master's program right now. So I ha- I do, I believe in education to some degree because I'm I would not be in a master's program if I thought education was a, a flaming pile of trash. I, I do. I believe in some part of the process where you meet yourself as problematic as the system, the institution of education is. I do think that it is one of the only places that you can structurally deepen who you are, where you can build experiences that change the course of your life without having to sell your soul. You know, I mean, I don't know, maybe if you go to Princeton or something, you're selling your soul. But I don't know. Like, I I feel like there's a real value in education. It's like the one thing 
that nobody can take away from you. And it's almost been kind of like the North Star or the lighthouse for structured critical thinking. I mean, most Americans don't have time for critical thinking. That's why I hate when British people are like, Americans are so dumb, they don't know anything about. I'm like, don't even start with me. Because we're working. We are working. We are literally working all the time. Like, we don't have time to think critically. And when we have Netflix, when Netflix was like $5 a month, oh my God. Of course we weren't thinking critically. Like, when we had, when we could afford groceries, when we were, I mean, like, why would an American be focused on international politics when they have a, a big white house, a picket fence, the kids are all fed, everybody's happy, you can afford your means, and then you still have money left over to go to Disney World? Yeah, of course Americans were not awake. That's that's a part of the process is keeping us asleep. And so it's it's bizarre. And I think, so I'm writing my zine. Part of my zine, part of my 3,000 words I explained at the beginning of the intro um, is I'm writing about how Black people have never really been asleep. We've never been allowed to go to sleep, right? I mean, that's one of those lasting parts of colonialism that I'm arguing is still slavery. The fact that we are still owned, that we have to go above and beyond to prove identity, to prove legitimacy in a European context. That's ownership. And so we've never been asleep. We've never been allowed to go to sleep. We've never been allowed to have the American dream. The American dream is at arm's length. But the fact that we are at the front of the PR for the American dream, like, like I'm just going to say it again. My French friend, Plays Love by Keisha Cole at the party. What? So you're telling me Black people are at the front of America's PR regime? I wish I would have got the memo. Because why is my currency, my social currency up in the UK? Why am I the coolest thing to walk the earth? And maybe that's my ego. But it's like, Oh my God, they think that we're living the American dream. And I get it, like from, a, from an outsider, from an outside lens, it would seem like that. When you look at music, when you look at rap, when you look at, oh my God, so many parts of black culture, sports culture, basketball, American football. Because we were enslaved. Like, let's not forget. So, no wonder that's a part of the PR regime. Look, we enslaved them and now they're thriving. They make lots of money playing football. Wow. I don't even know where to go from here. Like, I am perplexed. And I don't really know. Like, I, I've studied the American dream. I, at my previous college, I studied it at depth. Actually, Studying the American dream is what got me into UAL. In my interview with my professor, he asked me like deep questions about the American dream. And I explained to him the historical context of the American dream, how it wasn't necessarily a patriotic notion until the 50s, 
the idea of the founding fathers warning society that if we continue to look and search for endless progress, it will have grave consequences. Through the 50s, when we started selling our culture abroad, when Americans were, you know, given houses for four raspberries and a nickel, when we were building this context and this suburban myth of what America was and was going to be, it has always been about perspective, outside perspective. American culture has always been about the bird's eye, the bird's eye view, the fly on the wall. We didn't build our society for Americans. We built it to say, aren't you jealous? That's the difference between British colonialism and American colonialism. Is we co-opt everything and say, aren't you jealous? We're egotistical. We are coddled into that positioning. And so, oh my God. The way I'm having an awakening on this podcast. Mm. I don't even know what to say. So I'm left with this really weird conclusion here because like I suggested earlier, I feel like I have so much social currency here. And it's different. I mean, I think as a black American, in America, I've always had some level of social currency. But the problem is it can't be celebrated in America. It can barely even be acknowledged. My culture is acknowledged to me on non-black bodies. And so to come here and to hear praise for black American culture, I love this song. I love this rapper. I love this. I love Obama. I mean, it's almost like, holy crap. We are the entertainment. And th that's not new. But to be actually gaining social value from that is new. And I have to be careful not to get caught up in my ego. Because I recognize that they are not perceiving the truth of African-American reality. They're perceiving the PR machine, the propaganda machine. The problem is what they're perceiving is what I compare my lived experience to in my day-to-day -day life. Does that make sense? Like I, as an American citizen, am constantly juggling my version of the American dream, which is, which, which is represented to me through Beyonce, through Tracy Ellis Ross. I love her. She's like my hero. No, no, seriously. I have a picture of her on my vision board because I am obsessed with her. I actually have a picture of her and Beyonce. The list could go on. And also as a black woman, my experience with my heroes is different. For black men, black American men, football stars, basketball stars, rappers, that's their representation. 
in the media. And while I think it's a noble thing to be an athlete, it's almost having, everybody's almost questioning, wait, why can't we be doctors, nurses, lawyers? Like where, where is the fundamental aspects of life? Where, what, where is the value? Like, I think a lot of Americans are circling back to that, whether you're black or not. A lot of Americans are starting to circle back. Oh my God, the, not the corporate American jargon. We can circle back. But seriously, a lot of Americans are starting to re-emphasize and boil down to the basics of who, what they really care about. Because when you cannot keep up with the rat race, you start to think, well, I want to make my own bread. Why is everybody making their own bread right now? Like every American I see is making their own bread because it's like we want to be farmers. Like like we we genuinely want to go back to the simpler way of being. And I think it's ancestral. The problem is there's this little thing called colonialism. And so what's happening is while we are all waking up and unraveling these oppressive systems, we now have to address everything. And this is what the government does not want us to do. Like they don't want us to unravel so much that we go, oh, what about Hawaii? What about this? What about that? They don't want us to unravel those things. What about the indigenous people in the United States? Like reparations. They don't, they, they're not ready for that. And I, I'm not one to like make solutions. I'm definitely better in the ideological think tank. I'm way better in the existential rabbit hole than I am in solution. You know, and I think some people find this like as a negative Nelly thing. It's not. It's like actually critical analysis. And I find that there's a lot of avoidant people who cannot deal with critical analysis. They feel like they would just much rather be disconnected from themselves because to them that's peace. And that's how Americans have been conditioned is to be disconnected. They, Yeah, they, y'all aren't ready for the consumerist conversation either because that's what's coming next. When we talk about unraveling colonialism, reinstating what's right, the next thing on the chopping block is why do we need to buy everything? What is the point? Why do I need to decorate my identity through Stanley cups? Do you know how stupid it is that Americans buy $40 water cups? I was explaining that to my European friends and they were like, you're kidding me. It's not $40. And I said, yeah, 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 it's a $40 cup that people put Diet Coke in. Like they could not believe, they don't drink water first off. So the whole concept of a cup, let alone the cup that's $40, they were like, what are you talking about? It was so funny. Um, but yeah, consumerism is the next thing. Like when is enough going to be enough? When is the money that I have going to be enough to live on? What is my cap? What is my rich? A bunch of satisfied people. And I don't mean disconnected. I mean, satisfied people. People that have made their money work for what they need. For example, if your rich is a decent average sized home with a nice kitchen table where you can do crafts and you can have family dinners and you have enough money to go out on a limb and buy cookies and treats that you like, if that's rich, 
then capitalism stands no chance, right? Like they constantly need us to be addressing what's wrong. And if you notice, that's a really big part of the white supremacist regime is this idea that you're never enough. Why do you think plastic surgeons make so much money? Hello? Like they need you to think that you suck. They need you to hate yourself. And it's not surprising. And I think that's the saddest part for me as a woman is growing up seeing the women that I admired rip themselves apart. Like literally tear themselves to shreds because they were not the Eurocentric standard. Do you know how crazy that is? Like I cannot fathom that this is real. That we're just supposed to take their word for it. Okay, that's pretty great. Good idea. Like, why, where are the girls that question everything? Because you're my people. I had a brief. So part of what we do in my master's program is we have briefs. And the brief this week is about the Library of Babel. And don't ask me what it means because, honey, I don't know. That's the whole point of the brief. It's very, very abstract concepts. And the second I finished reading the theory, I told my friend, I was like, why is math real? (laughs) And she was like, Sarah, what the heck? But seriously, what is math? Like, are we just going to take these things for their word? We're just going to say, oh, yeah, yeah, math. One plus one is two. Like, how do we know that? Who decided that that was important? No, I'm being serious. Like, let's get into the history of math. Why is it real? Like, everything is quantified in a white world, in the Western world. Everything has to be quantified. I bought this book today, or I didn't buy it, but I checked it out. Because, again, I'm building all of this research for my zine. And so I got this book um, about the Harlem Renaissance. And before I realized that a white man wrote it, the first page I opened to was a chart with statistics. And I immediately looked at the author. I said, he's white. He was a white author writing about the Harlem Renaissance. And you know how I knew that? Because the first page I opened to was a table with statistics. Everything is measured. In a colonialist system, Everything is measured. It's not real unless it has a numeric value. I have an issue with that. I do. And you only get it if you get it. Math may not be that big of a deal to you if you're white and you've never really gone without. You've never really thought that the bank wouldn't give you the loan, right? And so you start to really question math. As a black person, like, what are we, like, what, like, why, why are we dealing with inflation? Why do I have to deal with inflation if it's a made up concept? Why not just print more money and erase the inflation? Like, who cares? Who cares about the global system? Am I the only one that thinks this way? Like, These finance bros will stress out and tell you why they can't do that. Like, who cares? Like, hello? I I just, we're so removed from the reality of what life actually is. And I think through this questioning and through the absurdity, is that a word, absurdity? I realized that 
there's freedom in the reality that nothing is real. As often space that concept is, lately everything kind of goes back there. And if you if you're getting a master's degree or if you're looking at getting a higher degree, higher educational degree, just know that your brain is going to expand to the point where you go, "Oh wow, nothing matters." And I really can't change the world. Like not in a bad way. It's it's liberating. It's like, what am I going to do with the rest of my time on this floating rock? Because nothing is out of reach. Like everything that I thought would be debilitating, it's not. You know why it's not debilitating? Because I've decided that it's not going to debilitate me. Like that's where I'm at. (laughs) Like that's, (laughs) y'all. And on that note, this was this week's episode. (laughs) No, seriously, like I, all of my research right now goes back to this place. Like, what is time? Does it matter? Is it real? No. Okay, next. Like, like truly, nothing has made me more spiritual than a deep critical analysis of system. Because it's like, oh, it's not real. <laughs> like, that good. Oh, my God. I need some of y'all to get a master's degree so we can really talk. So we can really chat. But... That's my analysis this week. I find, you know, circling back to Emma Chamberlain, oh God, circling back. But seriously, circling back to Emma Chamberlain, I, again, feel like she was the modern representation of the American dream because she was a regular working class kid. She wasn't a a billionaire. She wasn't a Jenner, a Kardashian. You know, she didn't grow up in Beverly Hills. Certainly she has privilege as a white woman. And I think Emma Chamberlain is highly merchandisable. You know, she's somebody that, the industry easily said, oh, perfect. She's thin. She has blue eyes. And I think she's blonde. You know, and I, and I that's, the, that's the reality. You know, not only does she have an audience, but oh, we can help manipulate her for to get access to her audience. It was such an easy grab for all these companies and for her own platform. And I feel like people were on TikTok were talking about that. Like she desperately needs a structured environment to like free herself from the system. And so we, it's like everyone's kind of coming back full circle. There's a time in history, not history, but in recent years where generally the idea was that if you went to college, you were just going to further embed yourself in a system that you would never get out of. And now people are saying, oh, if you don't go to college, you're trapped by the system because you don't know how to think critically about the system that you're in. It's so interesting how perspective will change, which is why you have to do what is best for you. And I firmly stand by that. I think a lot of people, I think human behavior in general is just motivation by perception. Like, what do I think I will get out of something? out of dating this person or having this snack or whatever. And um, I will say that as somebody who wants intends to take, to play the long game, meaning I intend to build my career over time. I don't want quick success. I don't want overnight fame. That scares me. I would like to build my life as slowly as possible and have real reward. 
Meaning, to be able to look into the mirror and know who I am. That's freedom. The freedom is to sit down and to paint something and not judge yourself. The freedom is to stand naked in front of a mirror and not find something to hate. Like, that's freedom. The freedom is not recognition. The freedom is not money. Money is a tool. Money is an object. That's not why I'm doing it. And I think we all need to reflect on our why. Because if you don't have a why, it's going to get really difficult in the next few years for you. Because everything we know is unraveling. Culture is unraveling. And I'm afraid that a lot of people are holding on to the past. They're holding on to what was. And I've talked about this before. If you haven't heard my story, go listen to my first episode. But I talk about my journey through a sorority and my journey through a collegiate experience where I really had to meet myself and get real and say, who are you and what do you want? And I had a lot of people, a lot of these um, quote unquote friends, these sorority quote unquote sisters, they unfollow you like like clockwork. Everything is a transaction, you know, and it's like shocking because I just assumed naturally that everybody wanted to be deep. I assumed that everybody just wanted to learn and deepen their understanding of themselves and the world around them. That's not true. People are running away from themselves. And actually, we're conditioned to do that. So bring it back to the American dream. We are conditioned to want to just fall asleep. And anybody that threatens them, anybody that pokes the bear, pokes them to see something different, if there's deep fear. And so, I don't know. I guess I want to end this by saying, build a vision board. I say that every podcast now, but it's true. It's my liberation. It is my vision for myself that is so intricate and layered and personal to me that it can't possibly fail me. And life will find ways to surprise you with your visions. You can't be out of sync with a vision board. It's amazing. And it's really my North Star right now. It's really my one big spiritual answer. And I respect it and appreciate it deeply. I think it's why I'm here, why I'm in London, why I'm getting a master's degree. Like my perspective on my life has changed. I used to be chasing things, forcing myself to see things a certain way, forcing myself to adapt to certain things. And now I realize that I get to dream big and watch it unfold. And of course, there's hard work in the process. There's fun in the process. There's recreation in the process. There's many things in the process, in the present. You know, the experiences that I want to have are coming to me. I know that because I can see them. Like I have thought of them. I've conjured them into my brain. And that is liberation. It's a feeling. It's not even really maybe a tangible reality. I don't know. That's kind of where I'm at with that right now. All right, y'all. And this concludes this episode. And actually, this concludes season one. Hopefully, you were able to follow along my rambled thoughts 
rambled, scrambled thoughts there at the end. Like I said, I've been doing a lot of theory. I'm in my MA right now. So it's a lot of really deep thinking. And sometimes I start at point A and then I end up at point Z. And I'm just hoping that these episodes have made sense. I don't know. <laughs> um, in the meantime, you can find me on Instagram, TikTok. I posted a vlog on YouTube recently. So there's tons of me out there. And I will be relaunching season two in the new year in 2024. Um, follow my Instagram for updates on when that is going to be. But I'm not going anywhere. This is really fun for me. I've really enjoyed. <coughs> I have really enjoyed this podcast. And I want to thank you guys for showing up for me, downloading the episodes, following along. Um, I get the sweetest comments all the time and messages on my Instagram about how much this podcast has impacted people. And you just love hearing my scattered, crazy thoughts. So, you know, today it was American Dream. Tomorrow it'll be something completely different. Um, stay safe, stay healthy, and I'll see you in 2024. Bye-bye.